Our series in Matthew uh, brings us this week to chapter 20, and our scripture reading is going to be Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19. Uh, If you happen to have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 825. Heard Tammy say her group's known as the Mature Group. I'm I'm thinking we need to get large print Bibles, too. (laughs) As some of you are finding uh, this place in God's Word, let me just uh, let you know, I know an email went out this week, but Last week, we took up our dollar for missions offering, and it went to buy two books for the Dominican pastors. And uh, as was stated, we needed $300 to complete that purchase. Well, we received $328, so that was completed, and we thank God for that. And thank you all for sowing into the that ministry. Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem... He took the twelve disciples aside on the way, and he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. May God bless his word. Thanks, brother. Amen. Let's uh, let's pray before we begin this morning. Oh, Holy Spirit, you who give life, bless the preaching and the hearing of your word. With your help, may this word come forth from. From your heart and may it captivate our hearts, the hearts of your people to do what it says and and to become what it requires. Lord, we confess that we need your help. We ask for your grace. We pray that it would have a transformative effect on us, that we would be humble, receptive to your word and that you would come now and, and bless this moment, that you would anoint this moment, that you would help me as a preacher, help our church as hearers and that we would be swept by your word. We, we love you, Lord, and we give our hearts to you now. We consecrate ourselves afresh to you in this moment. And we give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. James, the Apostle James, has these uh, significant words to say to us in, in his epistle. Uh, they're very, very, very um, well known to us. He says, do not merely listen to the word. And so deceive yourselves, do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Well, that's our nature as human beings. We have this proclivity to just sort of look at ourselves Take a quick inventory and then just either dismiss that and just move on. And we are supposed to see ourselves in the mirror and be transformed by that. And that's one of the intents, I think, of Matthew chapter 20 is that it gives us a real opportunity. Matthew 26, the mirror right in our face. We see a lot of sin here that a lot of us can identify with. And that's juxtaposed with Jesus and his grace. 
So we have this man, Jesus kind of thing going on throughout this whole chapter. The disciples, but Jesus. But the disciples, but Jesus. And you see this massive character difference between the two. So we're going to look at the mirror this morning. And as we look at it, we're going to find hope because we're not just going to stare at our own sin, though I hope that we see that. We're going to see our sin. And then on the back end of that, we're going to see how Jesus is different than us and how Jesus calls us to be like him. So it's it's very encouraging in that sense. Um, Soren Kierkegaard uh, illustrates the truth of this idea of looking in the mirror and forgetting what you look at look like in his book called Self-Examination. And uh, he was a Danish philosopher, and here's what he said in the 1800s. He said, imagine that a lover has received a letter from his beloved. I assume God's word is just as precious to you as this letter is to the lover. I assume that you ought to read God's word the same way that the lover reads this letter. So then, with regard to the letter from his beloved, the lover makes a distinction between reading and reading. He understands reading to mean that if the letter contained a wish, he should begin to comply at once. There's not a second to waste. Now imagine that while occupied with reading the letter, he was interrupted by a friend coming in to see him. He became impatient because while he was trying to read the letter from from his beloved, there was an interruption and he was delayed. He would determine that next time this should not happen. He would say, before I begin such a task, I will lock my door or I will leave my home. I want to be alone, uninterruptedly alone with the letter. Otherwise, I'm not reading the letter from the beloved. And so it is with God's word. The person who is not alone with God's word is not reading God's word. Alone with God's word. My listener, allow me to make a confession about myself here. I I still do not dare to be utterly alone with God's word so that no intruder could creep in. In fact, I have never seen anyone of whom I dared believe had the honesty and the courage to be alone with God's word so that no intruder, no one creeps in. To be alone with Holy Scripture, I dare not. If I open it at any passage, it traps me at once. It asks me, as if it were God himself, have you done what it says there? And then, yes, then I am trapped. Then either straight away into action or or immediately into humbling confession. Oh, to be alone with Holy Scripture. And if you are not, then you are not reading Holy Scripture alone with God's word. Just as a lover wanted to be alone with the letter. This is the first thing we should do. If we are to look at ourselves in the mirror of God's word with blessing. That's a really helpful piece from Soren Kierkegaard. And and if we dare to be alone with Matthew 20, we'll see ourselves in the mirror of his word. In fact, what we have in Matthew 20, as I said, is this side by side, a comparative analysis of man versus God. The chapter is divided into three sections, 1 through 16, 17 through 28, and then 29 through 34. And in each section, we see two things, what man is like and what God is like. What man is like, what God is like. Where man is self-righteous, God is gracious. Where man is selfish, God is sacrificial. Where man is sick, the last section, God is healer. And that's the outline, and that's where we'll be headed this morning in light of looking at this passage. So first, in verses 1 through 16, we want to see here the self-righteousness of man versus the outrageous grace of God. Very distinct things here. Jesus begins his teaching with a parable, 
And, and just, just let me say a word here about parables. Uh, parables are not straightforward, literal explanations of things. Like if we're reading like Paul's epistles, for example, where he's laying out truth proposition by proposition. That's not how parables work. They're, they're not pictures or illustrations of higher truth. Instead, they're radical words. They're piercing words, which are intended to upset, disorient, divide. And here's the, here's the insight. Create a new story in your life, a story in which you are drawn into. In fact, we are characters in the unfolding drama of parables. And so when you confront a parable like this in the New Testament, it's important to realize that, that you're not an outsider sort of listening to a nice story. You're actually a participant in that story, in the unfolding drama of that story, and you are forced to find yourself in that story. So parables describe reality really from God's perspective. They're often unsettling to us. They, they crawl inside of us. They, they, they get inside our imagination and our conscience. They're not like Aesop's fables. You know, these nice little stories with a moral at the end. They're about the kingdom of Christ and our relationship with that kingdom, which is a big deal. And so parables are very, very important. And that's how Jesus begins in Matthew 20 with this kingdom idea again. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like. And then he launches into a parable. That's a very common way for Jesus to begin a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like. And and what he's doing here, actually, is he's picking up on the last two verses of uh, Pastor Mark's sermon last week in chapter 19, where Jesus said, verse 29 in chapter 19, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit. What's the word here? Eternal life. Next verse. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. And then he goes into this whole parable about guys who show up late at work and other people who come first, the first and the last. So he's clearly going to teach on what what that means in verse 30. He's going to unpack that for us in a parable. And the story he gives us is about an owner of a vineyard who hires workers at various points during the day. So he goes out and he first brings in some workers at 6 a.m., 6 o'clock in the morning. These workers come in and they labor all day long. And then he hires others way, way late in the afternoon, like 5 p.m. And those guys come in and they work an hour, just one hour. And, and, and the owner pays, here's the thing, everyone the exact same wage. So the guy who comes in at 6 a.m. gets paid the same as the guy who comes in at 5 p.m. They each get a denarius, which is a day's worth of labor of pay. And then he makes sure, the owner, that everyone knows that, hey, guys, I'm paying everybody the exact same rate here. And what happens is, as you can imagine, the guys who start at 6 a.m. get really upset and they say, this is not fair. We worked all day. How can you pay the guys who just came in the same wage? And that's the story. That's the parable. And so the owner, one of these workers get upset and the owner in the parable replies to one of them in verse 13. Notice verse 13. It says, friend. I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a day's wage? Take what belongs to you and go. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? And when I read that phrase, I was thinking Romans 9. Am I not allowed to do what I want with what belongs to me? Romans 9 is just echoing in my ears. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. 
uh, uh, I, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. The potter has rights over the clay. And I mean, all that imagery is, is playing out in my mind. Now, unlike the parable of the sower, Jesus doesn't give his interpretation here. But we can deduce what Jesus means because up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has already given us several examples of very unexpected people to enter the kingdom of God. For example, children in chapter 19, verse 14, who legally don't have, who they don't even own themselves. And then he says that the kingdom of God not only belongs to children, but he says this, he says it does not belong to the rich, at least primarily, at least very rarely. Very few rich people will enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because they love their riches. They trust in that. And here's the idea in this parable is that entrance into the kingdom of God is not gained by our work or labor. Huge point. But by the sovereign kindness and mercy of God. So if you come in at the 11th hour, you get the same pay. Because God's mercy doesn't work on a merit system. So this is a very, very in-your-face, sort of against self-righteousness parable. If you're prone to be self-righteous, Jesus just completely destroys that in this parable. So we see here, when we look in the mirror and we say, who are we here? We see the self-righteousness, this attitude that we're all prone with. Look at verse 11. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who hired those those hired last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. Do you see the argument there? It's like, we've done all the hard work. We sweated. We labored. We were doing all this hard work. We sh- We were punctual. We showed up on time. We weren't lazy. We, when you offered jobs, we were the first one to sign up. We were there early. We hit the ground running. We were 10 minutes early for our job. And there's this self-righteousness here. And these guys were obedient. They were self-controlled. They were self-disciplined. But the others, I mean, they appear to be lazy and irresponsible and undisciplined. And they're furious at the boss for this. After all, I mean, they worked themselves to death. They earned what they got. But the other guys did virtually nothing. And they got paid the same. And this is how all self-righteousness approaches God. Self-righteousness says that I have rights. God owes me answered prayers. God owes me a good life. God owes me a ticket to heaven when I die. And so the idea is that I, I, I'm, we, we kind of sort of try to leverage God and put him in a position where he owes us. But despite all of our fastidiousness and piety, when we do that, we're actually rebelling against God. I mean, if you believe that God owes you or that God ought to bless you because you've worked hard to obey him, then Jesus cannot be your savior. Jesus is the savior for those who confess that they don't have any good works, that all their good works are filthy rags. And that's the people that Jesus saves. So see, see what people do is they tend to define sin as breaking a list of rules. But Jesus shows us here that a man who has kept himself pure and violated virtually nothing. I mean, he is a plus plus on the report card. He showed up early at work, did everything. And he says that those who have kept themselves pure, violated virtually nothing, is every bit as immoral, as uh, every bit as sinful as the immoral person. Why? 
Because sin is not just breaking the rules. It's putting yourself in the place of God and it's establishing your own self-salvation project. It's establishing your own righteousness. It's saying, I don't need the righteousness of Jesus. I'm good enough on my own. And actually, in some senses, that's actually more wicked than the man who lives in just complete immorality. It's horrible because you're saying, I don't need Jesus. I don't need his righteousness. So here's the thing is that we just got to get this in our minds is that Jesus doesn't divide the world into good guys and bad guys into religious and irreligious, into moral and immoral people, into conservatives and liberals. The gospel is a new way altogether. And according to the gospel, here's the thing. Everybody's wrong. And everybody is also able at the same time to receive the grace and love of God. And the only prerequisite to receiving the mercy and grace of God is to admit that you need it. So that's the man in the mirror. We're self-righteous Now, what do we learn about God in this parable? We learn that God's grace is unsettling. Uh, Number one, it defies our expectations. I mean, think about it. We recoil when we hear about people being treated in a way that doesn't seem fair. But the the owner is not obligated to be fair, and that's just the point. It it doesn't seem just here. But to to this point, D.A. Carson says, man, if you want justice... Okay, here's what D.A. Carson says. If you want God to give you instantaneous justice, then welcome to hell. And and he's right. It's true. Do do this. Just mental assignment here. Okay, Uh, here, here it is. Do this. Try to list everything that God owes you. That would be the easiest assignment ever given. Ever given. The easiest task ever assigned, because only one item would be on that list. You know what it is? The eternal wrath of God. That is all he owes you. Does God owe you anything in here? Can anybody stand up and say, God owes me? And there's one thing, and it's his eternal wrath. But thankfully, God surprises us with his mercy. Even though he doesn't owe us salvation for anything good that we've done, he chooses in his mercy to give us salvation despite all the wickedness we've done. And this is the type of grace that's unsettling. And so we see in this parable really, really unsettling grace. Guys coming up, at, showing up at the very end of the day that were otherwise lazy and showed up late on the scene and God has incredible mercy on them and pays them the same rate. And then we see, secondly, God's grace is sovereign. The the bestowal of his grace is sovereign. God is under no obligation to extend forgiveness to anyone. And yet he has the right to dispense mercy as he pleases, which is what I said. Paul's point in Romans 9. Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Romans 9.20. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Mercy is extended at God's discretion. And that is great news for us as sinners because God is good. And he's really merciful and he's really loving and mercy is extended at his discretion. Now, sometimes God will save a man at the 11th hour. That does happen. There are stories. Maybe, you know, somebody who on their deathbed were converted. They had that experience with God. Amazing. It's beautiful. It's awesome to see that. And we should plead and pray like crazy when we have somebody on their deathbed. And we should, so maybe some of you know somebody right now that's near death and they don't know Jesus. Go today. 
Go to their room in the hospital. Go to their house. Plead with them over the gospel. God does save people at the 11th hour, but that does not mean you should try that. That does not mean you should delay and just sort of hope that you'll get right with God at the end. J.C. Ryle says this. He says, let us beware of supposing that it is safe for anyone to put off repentance till the end of his days. To suppose this is a most dangerous delusion. The longer men refuse to obey Christ's voice, the less likely they are to be saved. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Few are ever saved on their deathbeds. One thief on the cross was saved that no one should despair, but only one that no one should presume. It's very good. Very, very, very insightful. So this parable teaches us that the grace of God is both unsettling and it's sovereign. And to drive the nail home, Jesus ends the parable with this sentence. He says, the last will be first and the first will be last, which is a really, really fitting segue into the next section. Because what we have in the next section is James and John trying to be first, trying to be first. It's incredible. He just teaches on this parable. And the very next discussion is, can I sit at your right hand in glory? (laughs) Just amazing. And not only that, but amazing that verses 17 through 19, which Dave read for us, they totally don't get it. Jesus is just announcing his death, his impending death, this this fast, quickly approaching death. And they just they don't it's like they don't even care about any of that. They go right for can I sit at your throne in glory? Oh, I'm sorry you're going to die and all that stuff, but I'd love to sit with you in glory, like after you're crucified. Is that possible? And so you see just an incredible lack of awareness here. And what we actually see is a selfishness of man, point two, versus the sacrifice of God. The selfishness of man versus the sacrifice of God. Now, before we read verses 20 through 28, just just notice what's going on here. Just feel this tension of having announced his death. And then in verse 20, this is such an awkward scene. The mother of Zebedee's sons, okay, James and John, uh, come to Jesus and, 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 and kneeling down, this mother asks for favor, a favor of him. And Jesus said, what is it that you want? Verse 21. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in, in your kingdom. Now, if, if just rewind here for a minute. Back in January, I preached a whole sermon on this passage. So if you want to hear a more detailed exposition of it from the Gospel of Mark, go back to January in our Bedrock series. The, the sermon is entitled Servants. And you'll see that. But let me just say a few words about it here again. That the mother, this is interesting, in Matthew's account, comes to Jesus. Now just kind of stop right there and think about this. Consider the awkwardness of this scene. Um, it's not like James and John are nine and ten year old boys here. All right. So the idea is not like a mom who who grabs her little her little boys and she goes to the little league baseball coach and says, hey, can you know, can I sort of uh, bargain for a little bit more playing time for my boys? She she, she, this is not like a, a mother who's going to a coach and asking for more playing time. These are grown men. These are disciples of Jesus that he chose. And yet mom shows up to the scene to go to bat for her boys 
And there's a couple things that are going on here. One's really awkward and the other's really sinfully motivated. The sinful motivation piece is that some scholars believe, and I think rightly, that their mother overheard Jesus' words in Matthew 19, 28. Look at verse 28 of chapter 19, that the disciples would suddenly be seated on thrones. And she got excited about that, and that piqued her interest. And then she thought she would jockey for a position for her boys and say, well, since the disciples are going to be sitting on thrones, I'm the first one to sign up. I want to sign up James and John, and they're going to sit right there and right there. Can we do that? And she gets to the front of the queue, the front of the line, and she's the first one to sign up. And all the other disciples are probably, like, green out of envy. Oh, man, she beat us to the punch. They, they got the first, they're, they're the first ones in line. They're going to get at the right hand and the left hand of, of Jesus in glory. Jesus got to be sitting here the whole time thinking, I just told you about my death. And here you guys are fighting about who's going to be sitting on my right hand. How, how about this? None of you are sitting anywhere. You just feel this. It's just an incredible moment. But either way here, and I think the other thing is the, the awkwardness of a mom approaching Jesus on behalf of her grown boys. Like grown men, that's weird. It's embarrassing. Now think think about this. Here's why it's embarrassing. I'm not saying it's wrong for a mom to approach or to advocate for her sons. I mean, there's going to be something very beautiful about that. But not here. Not here it's not. The whole scene would be funny if it were not painfully true in our culture. We have a growing epidemic of extended adolescence. It's a Peter Pan syndrome. It's adult. It's adult boys... Mama's boys refusing to grow up. They don't, they don't have a job. They, they, they don't have transportation. They, they don't get married. In fact, they're not even marriageable because they're so feckless and irresponsible. Let me just think about our culture for a minute. I mean, what dad would give away his daughter to a guy with a dead end job sitting in his parents' basement playing video games? In his 30s. Not me. Not me. No way. I mean, I don't have a daughter. I have two boys. But if I had a daughter, I'm not signing for, I'm not signing up for that. No way. It's just irresponsible. It's pitiful. Look, historically, there are two phases in life. There's boy and then there's man. That's it. But we've created this sort of amorphous third category in the middle of sort of extended adolescence. And this transition that's supposed to take place between boyhood and manhood is pretty clear. Historically, number one, leave your parents' home. Genesis 2.24, leave and cleave. Leave your parents' home. Leave. Leave. Number two, finish your education and vocational training. Finish it. Get your education. Do something with your life. Three, start a career. Don't get a dead-end job. Number four, meet a woman, love her, honor her, pursue her, court her, ask her mom and dad if they have a mom and dad for, for their blessing to date her and court her and then marry her. And then when you marry her, guess what? You still have one more responsibility. If you can, if God is gracious, have children with her. Because that's also a command to be fruitful and multiply. And those are the stages of moving from boyhood to, to manhood. And yet, in our society, it's not happening like that anymore, like it used to. Instead, we've created this extended adolescence. There's no foreseeable end. It's a stage between boy and man. They're, they're boys with beards. Yeah, they can grow a beard, but they're boys. 
And our society is placing no pressure on them to become men. And Paul said, here's this. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. And that's a huge problem in our culture right now. It's, it's just, it's awful. So, so my, my encouragement to you guys, young guys, don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. Follow these five steps. Leave your parents home. Get an education. Get a good job. Find a godly woman who's virtuous. Honor her. Bless her. Court her. Get your parents' blessing. Marry her and have babies with her. And be faithful to her for the rest of your life. That's manliness. That's biblical masculinity. And anything outside of that is, 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 a, is a gross departure from God's word. And guys, the other encouragement to you is do this in the context of the local church. I mean, because you need to be coached and discipled by older men. Seek them out. But in the second place, notice what this mom, that this mom, James and John's mom, is asking for on behalf of her boys. She wants them to have a position of prominence. See, we see pride and selfishness here. There's a spirit of sinful competition. The, these disciples and their mother are they're jockeying for position, right? Verse 22 Jesus says, you do not know what you're asking. Jesus says, can, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, then you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. Really interesting. Jesus says, I, I'm sorry, I can't grant that privilege. My father only can grant that privilege. But I, what I can grant you is this. You'll drink a cup. And that cup is not a cup you want to drink. But are you willing to sign up for that cup? Oh, yeah, yeah, we sign up for that cup. The the word you here in verse 22 is plural. Jesus addresses the mama and the boys. And he says, y'all don't know what y'all are asking. That's what's going on here in the Greek. And then from that moment on, here's the really fascinating thing. The word you shifts from plural to singular. He dismisses mom says, I'm done talking to you. I'm focused on the boys now. And he moves on to the boys. He doesn't engage the mom any further. He doesn't say, hey, tell me what your boys like. What's their favorite color? What kind of food do they like? She's not interested in any of that discussion. I mean, he's not interested in any of that discussion. He goes straight to these boys. And he addresses James and John. And don't miss this, guys. He says to them, you have this whole throne thing in your head. You want to be somebody. You want to be recognized. You want to be elevated. But let me ask you this question. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Jesus is saying, if you want to be associated with me, that means some painful, hard days ahead. Your relationship with me is not going to be comfortable. And the cup he's referring to, of course, is the cup of God's wrath. That would be poured out against him. And Jesus is saying, are you able to drink that cup? Don't talk to me about thrones. Are you able to drink that cup? There is so much cheap Christianity in America, in our churches. Man, we're all about positions. We're all about prominence. We're all about doing big things for God. We're all about, man, this is exciting stuff. All these cute things. We're all about all that stuff. It's so cheap. And the question is, are we able to drink the cup? The question is not prominence. The question is not status. The question is not who are we? The question is, are we sacrificing like Jesus, with Jesus, and for Jesus? I mean, we're talking about, folks, this is grown-up Christianity. There's a price to be paid. There's a sacrifice of life. 
Are you able to drink this cup? The cost of discipleship is steep. Have we cheapened it? Have we cheapened? Have we cheapened it? And I think we have. I think we have. And But, but it's steep, folks. It's steep. And here's the encouraging thing. Matthew Henry once said, when considering the cost of discipleship, which is really, really steep, consider the cost of not being a disciple. So it's it's worth it. It's a hard and difficult life in many respects, but it's so worth it. Now, what we learn here is that those who plan to receive the crown must carry the cross. I mean, if we want to stand with Christ in glory, we must suffer with him on earth. Many times we get ahead of ourselves and we ask God for things without considering the cost. We're just praying about stuff, asking God for stuff. We don't, we're, not, we're not thinking about all the things that go into the, the, the price, the pain, the difficulty of this. J.C. Ryle again says this, very helpful. He says, do we not often say things in prayer without counting the cost? We ask that our souls be saved and go to heaven when we die. That's a good request indeed. But are we prepared to take up the cross and follow Christ? Are we willing to give up the world for his sake? We ask that God would make us holy. But are we prepared to be sanctified by any process that God in his wisdom may ask us to pass through? Are we ready to be purified with affliction? Or weaned from the world by loss? Or drawn near to God by sickness and sorrow? Therefore, let us beware of thoughtless, inconsiderate, rash petitions in prayer. There's a price to be paid. There's a there's a less obvious lesson in this text as well. And it's this. It's notice that there's a mixture here of faith and foolishness that can be found in the heart of a true Christian. And I find real encouragement here because there's something to be applauded in James and John, right? I mean, they believe that Jesus is actually going to go to glory and there really is going to be a throne and that Jesus is really going to be sitting on the throne, reigning and ruling over the world. So there's something to be commended there, right? They take Jesus at face value. There's faith there. And yet there's this mixture of foolishness in here with their request. They they disregard what Jesus just said about his crucifixion and the suffering to come. And they don't take into consideration the fact that he had to be crucified before he could reign. Martin Luther says this. He says the flesh always wants to be glorified before it's crucified. So there's a mixture here of faith and foolishness. J.C. Ryle says we must remember that true faith may lie at the bottom of their hearts even though there is much, much rubbish at the top. And I, again, I love that because I take encouragement from that, don't you? The fact that God sees our faith at the bottom of a pile of foolishness. And he sees you. And he see, and He loves you through that. And he sees that, hey, this is a guy who has got a lot of flaws and is really broken in a lot of ways. But praise God that at the bottom here, there's a guy here that believes in me. He's got a childlike faith in me. He still trusts in me. And I take hope in that because I know there's a lot of foolishness piled up. But underneath that, there is faith in God. There's trust in God. There's hope in God, and I praise God for that. So that's the man in the mirror. We're prone to selfishness and pride. But what do we see about Christ here? We see that he's humble and he's sacrificial. Look at verse 28. Jesus says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. And here it is, to give his life a ransom for many. And verse 28, 28 gets to the heart of why Jesus came. And really, we see four things here. He came to suffer, okay, He came to save. 
He came to be our substitute and he came to serve. Suffer, save, substitution, and serve. Those are the four things he came to do. Just highlight two of them, substitution and service. Think about this. He came to be our substitute. Verse 28 says, Jesus came to give his life a ransom on behalf of many. And that word for or for many or on behalf of many is the Greek word anti. And anti means in place of. So he came to give his life a ransom in place of us. That's what that means. It's the idea of substitution is very, very clear. We stood under the weight of our sin and the wrath of God was upon us. But Jesus moved us over, stood in our place and received that wrath of God for us. In other words, you live this morning because Jesus died instead of you. He took your death. He took your sin. He took your punishment. The son of God became man for us so that his death on the cross could save us from eternal judgment. So just think with me theologically about this. When Jesus is on the cross, what he's doing is he is satisfying the wrath of God. We call it propitiation in theology. Jesus is quenching the wrath of God against us by obliterating our sins from his sight. God's wrath is his righteous reaction to our unrighteousness. It shows itself in justice. But Jesus shields us from that nightmare prospect of the avenging wrath of God by becoming our substitute and receiving all the wages of our sin in his place. He receives all of our sin. He takes our place. Receives all of that sin. The Scottish theologian John Duncan was once overcome with this reality while he was teaching uh, a group of, of his theological students in the 1800s. And, and at one moment, in an outburst in his class, he says, do you know what Calvary was? What? What? And he paused and with tears streaming down his face, he said, it was damnation. And he took it loving. Friends, by the death, by this death, God's justice has been served. And that means there is no longer anything left for us to bear. This is the gospel. He came to suffer. He came to save. He came to be our substitute. Think about how awesome this is. We sit here this morning because of that substitution. That really happened. Jesus really bore those sins on the cross. And then he came to serve, and this always just blows me away. That that that, and we're called to follow his example. This it says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Now you would think that the, the the very person who who offers himself up as a substitute would be one that we would readily serve, and we should serve. But that very one who was our substitute says, "That's not why I came. I didn't come to be served by you. I came to serve you." Does that not surprise you? I did not come to be served by you. I came to serve you. And, and so we always talk in, in Christian life about serving God, serving God, serving God. And there's something good and right about that. But can we just stop for a moment and consider that that's not the point? Jesus said, I didn't come for you to serve me. I came to serve you. That's why I came. And that just throws us off because we're, we're, we're all about like trying to do something for God and get recognition for that. And Jesus is just saying, just, just be, be done with that for a minute. I came to serve you. 
David Platt says this. It's just so shocking to us. Jesus did not come to be served by you. He came to serve you. Jesus did not come to be helped by you. He came to help you. Jesus did not come to be waited on by you. He came to wait on you. And we know that he puts on clothes to serve us in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And when he spreads the greatest feast ever in the history of mankind. And everything's going to be there. It's going to be an incredible feast. Jesus is going to be walking up and down the rows of that table. Serving you more, more food. Serving you more drink. Serving you more desserts. And we're just going to be sitting there like, what's? how can we let Jesus do this? It's incredible. Now, that does not mean that we, because Jesus came to serve us, that we get to tell Jesus what he does. But it does mean that Jesus gives us what we need. Has there ever been such love? Has there ever been such humility? And the obvious point of this text, of course, is that we're to be like him. We're to lay down our lives for the sake of others. Following Jesus involves the sacrifice of our lives in in service to others. Look at verse 26. Whoever wants to become great, there's the first motif among you, must be your diakonos, servant. That's where we get the word deacon. That's why we have deacons. A a diakonoi is a body of deacons. Diakonos is a servant. And and whoever wants to become great must become your diakonos, your servant. Now, check this out. Really interesting. And whoever wants to be first must become your doulos, your slave. Diakonos and doulos are different words. If you want to be great, you need to become a diakonos. If you want to be first, you must become a doulos, a slave. That's the lowest but in Jesus' economy, it's the highest. It's, it's just amazing. Notice the difference between the words servant and slave here. I mean, it's very intentional. And I think the application is that we should move from servanthood to slavery. Because slavery is actually a higher... And, and, and I don't mean slavery in an American context. I'm talking about biblical the biblical idea here of slavery, of, of, of being... Of, of being uh, captivated or compulsed by something. And in this case, we should move from serving as a volunteer because it's easy to sign up for something. Somebody says, there's a need in the church. Okay, where's the list? I'll sign up for it. Looks like nobody signed up. Here's my name. I'll be there at the time and I'll take care of the job. Okay, well, super thankful for that. The church should be really, really thankful for that. We need people like that all the time. That's not the idea here. The idea is to move from that, which is good, into something much better, which is a slave. See, to move from a diakonos to a doulos means that we should move from serving as a volunteer to serving out of, hear this, a grace compulsion. So that grace is enslaving you. So that the gospel is enslaving you. So that the love of God is enslaving you. And you have a compulsion To lay down your life, not because there's a list somewhere that you need to sign up for, but because it's God's love and mercy and grace that's getting you out of the door. It's not the pastors asking you to sign up for something or or somebody in the city that needs something. It's God's mercy that's motivating you. That's a different thing altogether. When grace takes over, we're compelled to serve others. What defines so so just a just a kind of a application here, what defines you? 
uh, in life is not your personality profile or your gift. It's so easy to say, well, I'm this personality type or here's my gift. I have the gift of hospitality or I have the gift of this. I have the gift of that. What, what defines you in life is not those things. What defines you fundamentally in life is that you're a slave of God. You're a slave of Christ. You're a slave of grace. You're a slave of mercy. That's your identity. And so notice what Jesus does in verses 29 through 34. He just emulates this for us. He goes up to two blind men. He's drawn out in his grace, in his mercy, to two broken and busted up people, blind. And he heals them. And Matthew 20 ends with a portrait of our sickness and juxtaposed with a healing that only Jesus can bring. And just think about this for a minute. This room right now is filled with people who have experienced the transforming power of Jesus. It is. I mean, the stories that you all could tell, it's amazing. But we're prone to forget our history. We, we forget where we came from. We forget how desperate we used to be. We forget how low we were. We forget that we were in a bad, bad, bad place. And we had to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's every one of your stories. Even if your conversion wasn't radical, even if it was slow over the process of many years, your story was Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's your story. But but we forget that. We forget how messed up we were. I wrote this down. People don't change unless they're desperate. People don't change unless they're desperate. The difference between those who change and those who don't is desperation and desire. And I'm not saying that man can change himself apart from God's grace. Not saying that. But I am saying that apart from desperation, man cannot be saved. Do you hear that? I'm not saying that man can change himself apart from grace, but I am saying that apart from desperation, man cannot be saved. You've got to get to a place where you're done with yourself. Where you are done. You cannot do this on your own. And so what do we learn from these verses? We learn that, notice that strong faith is sometimes found in a place that we least expect it. Even though these two men were blind, think about it, they believed that Jesus was able to help them. They, they, they never saw a single miracle with their eyes because they were blind. Never. So they're, they're, they're the personification, living proof of living by faith and not by sight. They could not see the miracles of Jesus. And yet they believed Jesus could heal them. Heal them of their eyes, which they never had. It's incredible. Quite literally, they walk by faith and not by sight. Such faith should motivate us with all of our books and seminaries and churches and pastors and sermons and libraries. Have we lost a simple childlike confidence in Jesus? We're just so, we just read, read, read and, and listen to so many sermons and all this stuff. But what we really need is that simple, I believe Jesus can do this. Childlike faith. Change begins with hope. And they put their hope in God. And second, notice that these men use the opportunity to get in the way of grace. So if grace is like a water fountain, if grace is like a, a, a waterfall, they're running underneath it. These two blind men made sure that they're on the road where Jesus was walking. They wanted to get as close to Jesus as possible. And it should be like that for us. We should consistently put ourselves in the way of grace. These are the things that God uses to bestow his blessings on us. These are what we call the means of grace. 
prayer and preaching, the Lord's Supper and church attendance and sermons and community groups and fellowship. These are the places, hear this, don't miss this. These are the places that Jesus is walking. So if you want Jesus to touch you, you've got to be in the place that Jesus is walking. Where's Jesus walking? In the church. Where's Jesus walking? The Lord's Supper. Where's Jesus walking? Prayer. Where's Jesus walking? Community group. Do you want to be touched by Jesus? Then don't sit at home on your sofa. Get to the water fountain. Get to the overflow of God's grace. Get yourself under that, dear people. Please. Don't get there because it's a membership requirement. That's not what we want. Get there because Jesus is there to touch you. Don't you need to be touched by him? So the strongest motivation for coming to the Lord's Supper is not because it's a membership requirement. God forbid. The strongest motivation is that my Jesus is there and he's going to touch me there. And then third, notice the persistence of these men and how they sought Christ. They cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. And of course, they were rebuked and laughed at and, hey, be quiet. Hush. Be quiet. Shut up. And what did they do? Did they quit? Did they buckle their knees under that under that fear of man? No, they cried out even louder. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. They cried out. They kept crying out. You're not going to stop us. Get away from me. I'm trying to get to Jesus. I've got to get to Jesus. There's desperation here. They cried louder. And here's the thing. Jesus heard them. He heard them. The text says he stopped. And it says in pity he stopped. He healed them. And there's a lesson for us. We need a holy tenacity as Christians. Men and women who by the grace of God bulldog our way to Jesus. Just going to get to him no matter what, no matter what obstacles. I'm getting to Jesus. I'm getting to Jesus. And I was just talking to a sister in church today. I'm getting my marriage to the finish line. I'm. It's Marriage is rough. It's hard. It's difficult. I'm going to get it to the finish line, though, by God's grace. I'm going to get my soul to the finish line by God's grace. How am I going to do that? I'm going to run to the means of grace. I'm going to be at the Lord's Supper. I'm going to I'm going to get there. I'm going to get where Jesus is walking. I'm going to bulldog my way and with his grace and with his power to the finish line. And that's why we need the means of grace and heavy doses of it, folks. Look, we're we're bombarded all the time. And so, look, we're 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 intentionally as your pastors right now trying to heighten churchmanship at our church. We're, we're, we're preaching about that. We're talking about it. We're seeking to heighten that reality in your life. And here's why. It's because you all are absolutely bombarded like us with all kinds of distractions. We have got to seek God. We have got to seek God. Our culture is getting worse and worse. It's getting harder and harder to live as Christians. And so, man, we're just saying we've, we've got to work. We've really, really got to work to get in each other's lives and press in and seek God together. And then notice the last thing here. Notice how gracious Jesus is to those who seek them. To those who seek him. It's amazing. Verse 32, we read, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? Love love that. It's like an open-ended invitation. I'll do whatever you want. What do you want me to do? And and so merciful and so compassionate. I mean, we cannot comprehend his love. It's the love that Ephesians says surpasses all understanding and we need to be more like Jesus in this regard, especially in the church. 
I, I'm convinced that some people never get help. Some people are in a really, really the throes of sin that they never get help in the church. And you know why I think that's the case? It's because they're, they're afraid to open up and share their sin with other people. Why are they afraid to open up and share their sin? Because they're afraid that, one, they'll be gossiped about, or two, they'll be judged, right, by other sinners who are doing the same types of things. And so, therefore, they're afraid and they don't open up. And I just pray, may that never be at our church. I pray to God, I pray to God that this church will always be a place where anybody that struggles with any problem, any issue, will find allies and will find help and healing. So, guys, just be gracious. When people share their sin, be really, really redemptive and gracious and let's help each other. But then there's the other side of this problem, which is a refusal to get help when you know you need it. Out of pride, you just won't share it because you're just like, I'm just too prideful to let somebody else know that my life is falling apart. The wheels are falling off right now. And I'm not telling anybody because, man, I want to have an image that I got it together. Don't do that. Dear friends, please don't do that. You think it's hard and embarrassing to get help. But let me tell you, if that sin continues at some point, it'll become public and that'll be far more embarrassing. And it's much worse. People are willing to help you now. And Jesus, here's the big thing, is able to heal you now. Because transformation begins when we put our hope in God. Transformation takes place when we put ourselves in the way of grace. And transformation occurs when we cry out with persistence, Jesus, have mercy on me. And he does. So that's what we see. The man in the mirror is sick. But Jesus is our healer. Verse 34, and Jesus in pity touched their eyes. And what happened? Immediately, they recovered their sight. Amen. So good. Friends, Jesus is touched by our desperation. He's touched by our humility. Jesus is touched by our sincerity. Jesus is touched by our humanity. This is what touches him. Find a single person in the Bible who ever came to Jesus for mercy and did not find it. Find a single person. There's not one person in history who ever sincerely came to Jesus for help and did not find it. Not one. And that means if you're here this morning and you know that you need help, if you seek him today, you will definitely find help. 100%. Guaranteed. It is the most sure thing in the history of humanity. If you seek him, you will find it. And then notice this. Notice the last three words of this chapter. And they followed him. And don't let that be three words. That's discipleship. Healing is not the gospel. The miracle is not the thing to be worshipped. The miracle points us to someone greater, and that's Jesus. And that's the hope of this chapter. Where man is self-righteous, God is gracious. Where man is selfish, God is sacrificial. Where man is sick, God is healer. And that's the good news of Matthew 20. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thanks that it's just so good to just get washed. Just get washed and get the filth off of us. Just to have a new perspective, new eyes to see and fresh hope to take into our week. And so I pray for our church that as we go off into this next week, we'll go with great hope. That And we'll run to the places where you're walking, Jesus, to receive mercy. And we'll run to the means of grace. And we'll run to the, to, the, to the water fountain of your mercy. 
and will stop their God and will say, take this dirty sinner and wash me, O God. Take our, take our dirtiness and our filth, O God. Wash us afresh this morning. I pray for a cleansing on our church, Lord. I pray that you would wash us afresh, Lord. Wash us anew. And may we just resound with, we just, may, the, may our, our bodies and our souls shine with brilliance and light and glory and beauty and sanctification, Lord, and holiness. Draw us to yourself, Lord. Wash us afresh this day and transform us in your presence, we pray in Jesus' name.